I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. This is Money in Politics. It's been a year unlike any other, and one of the defining characteristics of 2020 will certainly be the renewed and overdue attention paid to issues of systemic injustice and racism in many aspects of American life. My guest today is someone who has long been working to address this with a very straightforward approach, elected representation. His name is Quentin James, someone I admire a great deal, and the founder and president of the Collective Pack. The Collective Pack is working to fix the challenge of underrepresentation of the black community in elected seats of power throughout the nation. They are a major and growing force in progressive politics, and their work has never been more important. Quentin will give us an inside look and share his insights. But first, a quick word from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm here now with Quentin James. Thank you so much, Quentin, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it is my pleasure, and I'd love for you to start by sharing a little bit about your personal background, just what brought you to become the founder of this organization, the Collective Pack that we're talking about today. Sure, yeah. So again, my name is Quentin James. I live now here in Cleveland, Ohio, but originally I'm from South Carolina, Greenville, up in the upstate. I got my start in organizing. Actually, in high school, I went to a student leadership conference And I saw a group tabling and they had a palm card and on it was a quote from a tobacco executive. And this quote said, or it was a reporter who asked this person if they'd ever smoked cigarettes. And he said, no, I don't smoke that bleep. I reserve that right for the young, the poor, the black and the stupid. And it was like, wow, like on the record, he said that. And so I got started doing anti-tobacco use organizing through an affiliate of the Truth Campaign, which many people may be familiar with in high school. That was my start in organizing, using my voice, finding that I had a voice. So from there, I got involved with NAACP and was on the national board throughout college and worked in the Obama campaign back in 08 as one of their kind of first organizers in South Carolina. Went to D.C. afterwards to finish college up at Howard and started working in politics. Fast forward to 2016, me and my now partner and wife, we're consulting around the country, doing some stuff around the election. And we were talking to HBCU students that fall, and they were upset with what was happening around the country. They were saying they were not going to vote. I mean, it was very surprising. This was like August, September of 16. And me and my wife had also been frustrated at what we were seeing happening, particularly in Ferguson with the Michael Brown shooting and the fact that looking at the leadership of that city, a city council, there'd never been a black mayor. We started thinking like, what's going on with like representation? Like, why aren't we seeing more African-Americans in public office around the country? And so we put up some stats and we found out that 90% of elected officials are white. Uh, 95% of prosecutors who are elected are white. And 90% of the sheriffs who are elected were also white. And so we started digging into these numbers and saw like, this is a huge disparity in African-American representation in public office. 
And so that was the birth of the collective pack. It's like, how could we take our network of moderately upward mobile African-Americans to give 25, 50, 100 bucks to support candidates running for DA or city council or even governor or running for Congress around the country? That's how we started. Why we started, you know, four years later, like here we are. Yeah. Well, you've grown a ton in those four years. And I wonder, as you have developed all of these different ways to be involved in campaigns, right? I believe you have a C4, a C3, independent expenditure organization, I mean, really just a lot of tools for getting involved. And as you just mentioned, there's a lot of different levels at which you can get involved. There's DA and sheriff's races, and then obviously, all the way up the ballot. How do you decide as an organization where you can have the greatest impact, whether it's in terms of the vehicle that you are you know, funding of those different entities I was mentioning before, or the, even the types of races where you think you can have the greatest impact? Yeah, it's a great question and one that evolves week by week, depending on what's happening. We know a couple of things, right? Number one, Black candidates repeatedly say the biggest hurdle to them starting to run and also winning their campaigns is money. We have a huge money in politics problem. And so part of it is like, which candidates will excite donors and that we think we can raise the most money to be able to be helpful, right? That's number one. We look at obviously the map. We don't exist to primary other African-American candidates unless there's like a huge philosophical challenge, right? Like somebody broke the law or they're standing with, you know, I don't know, white supremacists, for instance, right? Whatever that is. So we look at the map. But then third, we also think about voters, Right. We were doing great work in 17 and 18, but realized with what happened in Georgia and other places, like we have to ensure black voters are coming out to support our candidates. And so that's the purpose of our C3 and C4 arm is thinking about registration, education, voting early, voter protection. To be transparent, I mean, our PAC has an endorsement questionnaire process. So we look at where candidates are on policy, but then we overlay other priorities, right? How much do they project that they can raise? How much do we think we can raise for them? How much do we think we can make their story a national narrative? So much of what we've seen of like the rise of these Black candidates has been the ability to uplift narratives. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum in Florida in 2018. But think about you know this year. Mondaire Jones in New York, Jamal Bowman, Charles Booker. Those are moments to uplift not only people who want to like go in systems and create change, but their identity, them being African-American and running in places like Kentucky or Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Those issues also matter and help resonate. So it's a lot of different things that go into our thinking and formulas, and it's not as clear cut as we'd like it to be. But I will say our North Star is always representation. So if you go to our website on our ballots page, we're tracking representation of African-Americans in the House, in the Senate, in the federal level, in, you know, state house chambers, right? We haven't gotten down to the municipal level yet. We're getting there on the county level. We'll have those numbers. But that's kind of also how we're thinking about prioritization is we right now need more African-Americans in the U.S. Senate. We'll be spending a lot of time thinking about those candidates running for the Senate this cycle, but also thinking about people running statewide as governors, lieutenant governors, right? We have a black gubernatorial candidate this year in Indiana, right, that no one's talking about right now. We want to make sure folks know about these candidates and have a way to research them and if they want to support them to be able to kind of do so easily. Gosh, there's so much in there that I want to chat about. So let me start with what you said actually kind of earlier in that response, which is about 
candidates that you feel like you can get your donors excited about. Talk more about that. What are the kinds of things that get your universe of donors excited such that when you see a candidate, you say, yes, this is going to excite my donors. And I guess I'll pair that with the question of what is your thought process or strategy around growing that universe? So over time, you're finding new people who will also become excited about these same things. It's a great question. And what we do, you know, some of our training programs, we run a black campaign school. So we talk about personal narrative and the why, you know, why are you running? And if that doesn't come through immediately for a candidate, it's going to be harder to kind of raise money for them and, and build a platform of support nationally to help them win. Because this really is about a collective army of people supporting locals in state candidates in places they may not live. Right. So if I'm in Ohio, I actually do care about who's the next U.S. senator from Georgia, right? So I want to collect my dollars. It has to, number one, start with narrative. Who are you and why are you stepping out to run for public office? I think some great examples of that, again, I mentioned some of these candidates before, right? But like, think about people like a Charles Booker in Kentucky. And we know he didn't win the primary, but started a, a national movement around growing up in the poorest zip code in Kentucky, going to college, being able to come back and run to be a part of local change and being a state representative, right? Those things matter when you talk about opportunity, but also the challenges in which they're looking to address. The fact that Jamie Harrison in South Carolina is running against a candidate like a Lindsey Graham, who for so many people was very anti-Trump and, you know, was applauded in a bipartisan way for, for steps standing up but it's now completely turned its back on voters. And this, so it's part of the individual narrative of a candidate, but also the opposition. Uh, so some of these things are a little organic and you can't kind of put them in a recipe and kind of make it more of a nice dish. But I think it starts with the authenticity of the candidate, their why, and the, their kind of story of themselves. And you mentioned that, you know, the number one thing you hear from black candidates is either the resistance to even throwing their hat in the ring to begin with, and then maybe having a successful campaign once they do is financial is the question of money. You also mentioned the candidate school that you all run. Just tell us a little more about that. I'm hearing that the narrative is really important, which just certainly resonates with me in terms of, you know, where I've seen candidates have a lot of success financially. But any other things that you find that is work that you all have to do to help candidates either break down preconceived notions or overcome particular barriers. How have you seen that work? Have you had a lot of success in that regard? Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is a really important part of our training. So we launched the Black Campaign School back in 2017. This will be our fourth year doing it this year. And it's small things, right? So think about barriers around Black women and their hair and how we have preconceived notions of how not only a woman's hair should look, but a Black woman's hair. And having their hair be natural or have braids or have locks, right? Those things matter. And what we know is that many times the consulting class of these broader committees and institutions will tell a woman, this is how you need to look. This is what you need to wear. This is how you need to talk. And what we do is tell Black candidates to be yourself. That's what voters care more about is authenticity. So again, the hair is an example. But you know, this issue right now around policing, there's polling out there that says running an aggressive campaign on defunding the police is not popular. It won't help you win. But we just saw in St. Louis, you had three black women, one running as treasurer, one running or four black women, one running as DA, 
one ousting another Black CBC member running for Congress, and then a Black woman lieutenant governor nominee, right? Running on an aggressive reform agenda and winning. And so part of it is appearance. Part of it is how we think candidates should talk. Also, part of it is ideology and what they say. We know that being your authentic self, tying it to your narrative and your experiences is how candidates can win. We address all that again through our campaign school. It's amazing the things that we have to reinforce because, as you know, right, we know that there's challenges among representation of candidates, also challenges among the representation of campaign staff, right? The campaign managers, the consultants, the media planners, media buyers. And so we have to fix all that for folks who are kind of first time candidates to say, no, like we know how you see it on TV or how they tell you you have to do it. But here are so many models of success. I look back 2018, Stacey Abrams, when the Republicans attacked her for two things. One, she burned the Confederate flag in college, and they released that picture of her doing so in the papers and and through TV ads. The second was she was in debt over, I think, six figures in credit card debt, but it was due to her taking care of her parents and having medical crisis. And so instead of running from those issues, we said no. You know, our campaign team, number one, be prepared for that. So know what's out there about you. But, But two... Don't run from it. Be proud that you did that. Tell the story of why you're in debt. Because many Americans and many Georgians at the time were also in credit card debt. And so part of it is also not running from the things that others will point out about you that may be negative. Just to say, this is actually the context of that and why it informs who I'll be as your new public official. Yeah. I want to talk to you about recent events. It feels to me as if the last at least year, and especially in the last several months, my expectation would be that a lot of the work that you do has evolved as a consequence of all that has happened by way of civil rights, social justice, anti-racism, anti-oppression. I mean, there's just, and, and that's not even to name some other pretty astounding things, including some of the electoral upsets that you've mentioned. As we're recording this, we're just a couple days into having the first black woman vice presidential nominee. My assumption would be, and I'm eager to hear if that's a correct assumption or not, is that that would have some impact on the universe of people who are excited to give their money to the collective pack, the universe of people who are excited to give directly to the candidates you all support. Is that true? Are you seeing that kind of energy? Is it translating in the way that I would assume it does to political action or or not so much? Yeah, I mean, this has been an amazing few months in that the nation and also the world's attention has been on inequality issues in our nation. We have seen a huge spike in donations and donors and activists looking to get you know more resources to run for office. I think a couple of things, though, on that. In terms of our work, we've always thought about electing Black progressive DAs, right, or attorney generals, right? We have more Black attorney generals now than we haven't had at any moment. That's from what we did in 2018, right? So we have Black AGs in Minnesota with Keith Ellison. In Nevada with Aaron Ford, in New York with Tis James, who challenged the existence of the NRA, which is a big deal. And then in Illinois with Kwame Raul. And so we are seeing people waking up and seeing the, the opportunities here. We did launch a new Justice for All Action Fund initiative, which is a specific part of our work now that is recruiting candidates, training them, and funding them to run for justice-related offices. So running for judge, running for DA, running for sheriff, 
running for attorney general, those offices that have direct impact on how our community deals with policing or the court systems or DAs. That's really important. That's been an exciting kind of new launch. I will say this, though, there continues to be a challenge around education of how we create change. We very much are a fan of and a part of this Black Lives Matter moment and movement over the past few years. But I would say we need to make sure people understand that in order to change the laws, we have to change the lawmakers. We cannot continue to advocate for change from a group of people that's not reflective of our communities. We have to change the makeup of these bodies, of our city councils, of our county councils, of our state houses, of our Congress, folks who are in the White House, right? That is really critical that we change the makeup of those bodies to be more reflective. Identity is an electoral issue. It's not the only one, but it should be a consideration in terms of who we think about. The gender disparities, the racial disparities, the religious disparities, the sexual orientation disparities, these things matter in terms of public policy. And so I think we now have an opportunity to continue spreading that message to people and getting them to step up and make change, whether that be them running for office, them helping a diverse candidate run or win, them contributing to these efforts. I think those issues matter. And to your point, an exciting time to be doing this work because so many folks are now interested in helping us accomplish our mission. And are you seeing that that translation from energy and sort of activity literally in the streets to translating that into how do we actually pull levers of political change, to your point, change the lawmakers themselves? Is that resonating? Are you able to make that translation? Or does it feel like there's still a divide between people, maybe even who are actually rejecting the political process as feeling so broken? Or I mean, there's, there's always that problem, right, is if people become so discouraged almost by how let down they've been by a system that rather than continue to figure out how to fix it, they just turn their back on it. Are you seeing that? Or are you able to get people to see that kind of, you think you use the word education, educate people across the spectrum from activism, to political change and leadership. Yeah. So to your point, I'm still hopeful of people having hope in the system and having hope to change the system. I think the things that we have to communicate and that folks have to understand is that, number one, as John Lewis said, change takes time, which can be troubling, right, for people to think about. This is not a two-month process or a six-month process. This is a two, three, five, ten-year process. So that's number one. Number two, I do think our institutions are very much standing in the way of the speed of change. And I don't mean like government. I actually mean the gatekeepers of who's in government, right? So I think about the heads of the major parties, both Democratic and Republican. I think about the heads of major party committees, the DCCC, the DSCC, the RSCC, the RCCC, right? The groups who kind of control not nickels and dimes, but like hundreds of millions of dollars. And they decide who the major candidates are for Senate or for Congress in their parties. They decide who speaks at the, again, time of recording, upcoming DNC convention. The fact that AOC is the most popular, based upon her Twitter followers and her social media following, the most popular congressperson only has you know one minute to speak at her party's convention. There's something there, right, around accepting this new wave. And again, we can have ideological differences in terms of how we make policy, but who we allow in the room 
is very much a challenge. And that's what I'm concerned about because you have energy. Folks wanting to step up to run, wanting to step up to make change, wanting to step up to provide policy ideas. How they're welcome and accepted is definitely an institutional problem that we have that we are working to break down really quickly. But we're even being met with some hostility. Because, again, this is also about power. Uh, This is about who controls budgets, who controls hiring and firing decisions, who gets the free parking spot. And we laugh at them, right? Like, it, it sounds silly. But there's hesitation to change because a group of people, unfortunately, who are mostly white and mostly male are very much the power brokers in all of our society, not just government, but our economic institutions, our educational institutions, our sports entertainment institutions, right? NFL, NBA, MLB. And so that demographic of people has to give up power. And that's where we're meeting a little bit of resistance. And that crosses ideological spheres, economic spheres. That is, I think, the challenge there. I almost harp on it too much on this podcast and elsewhere. My view of the problematic nature of the way we think about which candidates are viable, when we decide they're viable, who gets to decide they're viable, and all the consequence that stems from that. How does the collective pack think about Because I understand the balance, right? You also, on the one hand, you want to make sure that a candidate and a campaign does have some, I'll use the term, viability, has some path to victory, that they are going to be disciplined, that they're going to put the work in, that they are going to, you know, that they have the assets. You know, you you want someone who's connected to their community, all those wonderful things. And it often just gets boiled down to a single number, and that's how much did you raise on your last quarterly report. How do you all help candidates get beyond that, help candidates find their way to the DCCC's red to blue list, but you find them well before that so that they're not getting written off. What's your thinking about that? You know, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here. This is what I told, I don't know, one of the reporters, I don't know what which outlet it was. In terms of Black people and Black candidates, we are very much done waiting on white people to provide solutions or opportunity for us in our communities. So what I mean by that is, yes, we will make sure that committees know about candidates and where we think they're viable. But we're not going to wait for them to say, this is a new red to blue candidate. We're going to just work with them. And so, yes, we care about bio. We care about where you are on issues that we think are of concern to the Black community. We also do ask, though, right, you know, where are you at with fundraising? We know it can be a challenge, right? But we're not going to require you to raise seven figures in two weeks. Some committees do, actually. We very much have a different rubric. Our rubric, but it is more so on the bio and policy plan. Like, what do you want to change? What is your plan to make that change? Do you have community support, right? Do you have a grassroots movement behind you. That's really important to us. So that's very much more of our viability piece. It's more around who you are and what you want to do versus how much money you've raised or you can show on a financial report. I look to what happened in Tennessee recently in their primary, where a Black woman spent $10,000 and won the statewide nomination for U.S. Senate versus a white candidate who'd raised over a couple million dollars and was kind of very much backed by the major party committees. That is the kind of change that we're seeing happen around the country. And so we're building new institutions, new groups like ours who can do this. We can provide money. We can provide access to tech. We can provide access to the kind of best in class skills and how to be a viable candidate. But for us, it's more around bio and agenda versus 
dollars in endorsements, if that, that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. I'm just so curious about your take that I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. We're only a couple of days out at this moment of the historic announcement from the Biden-Harris campaign now. And it occurs to me, and I'm certainly not the only one, that we only have a single black woman in the United States Senate. And God willing, she'll actually be leaving the Senate not too long from now. Just curious about your thoughts, since obviously representation is so core to the Collective PAC's vision. What are your thoughts about what it's going to take to make sure that the Senate in particular I know you mentioned that earlier in the conversation, starts looking a lot more like America. I think we're thrilled at the opportunity to select the first Black woman to be on a Democrat or any major party ticket, number one. So we're excited. We think voters will be excited about that as well. When it comes to the Senate, we have to go where those communities are. So that means going to the South and competing in North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Louisiana and Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi, right? Where we have, right now we have four Black U.S. Senate candidate nominees, more than we've ever had at one time in history. But a lot of focus is on Iowa and New Hampshire and, you know, more, I would say, less diverse states. It is harder for Democrats to win in the South, let alone Democrats of color. That doesn't mean we abandon those, right? We have to dig in, dig down, and motivate those communities to come out and vote, to register new voters, to build a new electorate, which is what we saw President Obama do historically. In a way. He built a new electorate to support his candidacy. And so we're excited again to help Senator Harris become the first Black woman vice president. We're also excited to help Jamie Harrison and Raphael Warnock and Mike Espy and the candidate in Tennessee as well win these elections and help flip the Senate. That's great. Well, I'm going to let you go. But before I do, I just would ask that you remind those listening, where can they go to learn more about the Collective Pack? Where can they go to get involved and be supportive of the work you're doing, not just between now and Election Day, which is, I'm sure, most critical and top of mind, but also beyond? Sure. You can visit us at thecollectivepack.org to get involved. You can see our candidates and learn more about our programs. You can make a contribution there. And then follow us on social media. We are at The Collective Pack on Facebook and at Collective Pack on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much, Quentin. I'm sure people will be checking it out. I really appreciate the conversation. And more importantly, I appreciate everything that you're doing. Best of luck this election cycle. Awesome. Thank you. This has been a pleasure to be here. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI.